Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Benjamin Graham with the news. In local crime, police are looking for an intruder who broke into my residence, stole every one of my tattered books, and replaced them with unread collector's copies. If you did this, and you're listening, I will find you, you monster! You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, CM Alexander, alongside Joshua Khan. Hey, everybody. And Benjamin Graham. Hello, constant readers. And welcome <laughs> to my store of horrors. <laughs> That actually scared me when I jumped. (laughs) Oh, I almost forgot. (laughs) We are continuing our Patreon-selected book, Needful Things, which was picked by Jewel Jones. We are reading through Chapter 17, if you're following along, and if not, major spoilers ahead. And Josh is leading our discussion. Yeah, I am. And boy, howdy, what a section to talk about, because a million things happen. In this section of the book, I was telling uh, CM before we went live, I was like, I don't know how we don't just do an entire episode on chapter 17. Yeah, because it's it's an hour's worth of talking about. I I, uh, last night, I, as I always do, put off reading (laughs) until uh, this weekend. And I had like 130 pages to read by today. Right now, I was like, I don't know how I'm I'm just going to have to like. Sit down and buckle in. I've had a lot of coffee today, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. And then when I looked up, two hours had passed and I was done. <laughs> it, it flies. It flies like crazy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to work through the small bits so we can get to how they all add up at the end of this. Because the end of this section is where so many things pay off in the biggest way. It's There's two parts to the, these chapters. There is four chapters of build-up. And then one chapter of just everything crashing together. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, we come back to this section with uh, good old Buster Keaton sitting in his underwear, oiling his gun, like we all do, talking to himself about killing his wife and Norris Ridgwick, and he's going to do it right now, but Gaunt gives him a call, and it's like, hey, buddy, do it later. I'm sorry, can we back up? You missed something that, if I had to read, our listeners have to hear. He is not just sitting in his underwear. He is sitting in what is described as his soggy underpants <laughs> and i didn't realize it before but i don't like those two words together oh it's like really the opposite of cellar door it's the two least pleasant <laughs> words in the english language oh yeah well i just he's just sweat through his undies i no, i assume because he hasn't left his office oh, for true. days he has soiled himself <laughs> in all the ways one can do that it's horrible. how many ways is that at least three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But Gaunt talks him down into not doing it. And then Buster kind of disappears for a while. Then we have Everett Frankel, who bought a pipe that I believe was from a Nazi war criminal. It's heavily, it's implied. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Weird choice. It's 
th- so much of <laughs> this part of the book is just people coming in and out. Like, yeah. characters that aren't entirely important to the story, but just give you a growing scale of, holy fuck, how many people are being affected, not yeah. just the Brian Rusks and Wilma Nettie's that we are seeing, but there are so many people and so many other stories that we're not. Yeah. And well, yeah, the the part where he gaunt jokes that it's Arthur Conan Doyle's pipe and the guy walks out going, what a stupid lie. Of course it's Herman Goering's. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, Ew. I do love, though, that for him, this pipe makes him feel like he's wiser and more handsome. <laughs> like, and, and, I wished a pipe did that for me. <laughs> and, well, you were a pipe model. We've talked about uh, this. Did it make you feel wiser and more attractive and more powerful? Yeah. See? All right. Well, there you go. Mystery solved. It's not even a magic pipe. <laughs> yeah, he got robbed. <laughs> His prank is the kickoff to the landslide that is this chapter, and it is simply putting an envelope in Lester Pratt's car. It's so weird, too, because he doesn't even intend to go into needful things. He just has, he's on his way somewhere else to check on a patient, and he has this overwhelming urge to stop to tell Mr. Gott how much he's enjoying his pipe. (laughs) This is something I wanted to talk to you guys about, because so many people come and go from needful things, but sometimes the person is just like, huh, I think I need to go down to the that new store, and it's just a spur of the moment. But then most of the time, it seems, it is Mr. Gaunt literally calling them on the phone, mm-hmm. speaking to them through dreams. At one point, literally, like, telepathically talking to them in the yeah. moment because... Of a hilarious scene where he's talking to Polly, <laughs> but then, like, looks sideways and then talks and his mouth moves. But, like, that's kind of goofy that he actually has to, he can't just say it in his mind. He's actually, like, sitting alone in needful things being like. <laughs> yeah, so what did you guys think? Like, what should be, should it be magic or no magic or the weird in-between that it is. Because it kind of bugged me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like the the weird in-between just because it makes Gaunt not literally all-powerful. Like, there's some sort of drawback. He can't do literally everything at once. It shows why some people get away with not doing what he wants them to do right away. He'll get to them eventually, but he can't split his focus across everybody in town at once. That's a good point. Hadn't thought of it that way. I just thought the image of him, like, literally in the middle of a conversation having to stop and be like, hold <laughs> on a second. That is really funny. I got a, <laughs> I got a ventriloquist my way <laughs> across town. Well, after he leaves, Gaunt puts up a new sign in his window, and it is a help-wanted <laughs> sign, and we get... The return of Ace Merrill. CM, what? I need your reaction. Yeah. I was surprised. <laughs> I, because you guys, you kind of built it up in a way that I thought, oh, I must, it must be something I can guess, like something obvious. And I guess that is kind of obvious, but I was actually thinking, initially I thought maybe Buster, but you sort of 
turn me away from that. Mm -hmm. And so I just assumed it was Hugh. I thought somehow he was like, he was going to get fired and then Gaunt was going to say, well, you know, you can come work for me. (laughs) And we were just going to get more of weird Hugh, which we do, but not in the way I thought. So yeah, when I saw Ace, that was, I was like, oh, all right. Yeah. Now we, and this is Ace Merrill, who is about 50 years old, between 40 and 50 years old. He has slimmed down since the epilogue of the body. Thanks to cocaine. Yeah. Of course. And he's in some shit. Ben, do you want to catch us up on, on Ace Merrill's life since the end of the body? Ace Merrill's life has been exactly what you imagine Ace Merrill's life <laughs> It's strange going from Ace Merrill as we knew him in the body, who was a great villain, but was just, that. that's a completely non-supernatural story. To having him be the villain in this book, where he is still just an old greaser, because of course. Yeah. But being the big bad in another story, and then coming into this story where he is nothing compared to Gaunt, is such a cool dynamic. Anyway, his life, he was a loser, and he, he drank and was, quote, the king of Castle Rock for a while, just committing little burglaries and stuff. And then he went to Shawshank. (laughs) All thanks to Alan Pangborn. And so he has been out out of Castle Rock for years now. Yeah. Dealing cocaine and guns. And at the point he comes back to town, it is because he owes... Uh, two mobsters named the Corson Brothers, who might as well be straight out of a Coen Brothers movie, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he owes them a lot of money. And if he doesn't have it by November 1st, they are going to kill him. And he also has a similar feeling to Everett, our physician's assistant, that he just needs to come back to Castle Rock, which is interesting, too. Yeah, that something just told him it was time to return. I also liked that he he was doing pretty good, which I'm sure he would have found a way to mess it up no matter what. But at, at working back this debt that he owes the Corson brothers, and he's about to make a deal with a guy, and he goes to the bathroom to do some drugs in the middle of a deal. And someone else like whispers to him, he's wearing a wire. And the, the narration, it just stops for a minute to tell us it never occurred to him that that person might just be fucking with him. <laughs> <laughs> Which, as I really, I really hope is the case. In my mind, that person he's never seen is Leland Gaunt. I was thinking the same right? thing. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That he's been behind the scenes pushing Ace towards him because he needs That a makes sense with what guy. happens later. Yeah, yeah, we know he's been planning to have Ace for some time. Oh, God, that... Cha- that whole chapter ah! i got some stuff to say Good. See, you guys i read this all last night so <laughs> it's like hasn't sunk in yet <laughs> so ace sees a book in the window that says lost and buried treasures of new england by reginald merrill which is pop merrill's real name and he goes in the book's actually treasure island and he's kind of bummed but he gets to meet leland gaunt and some amazing things happen first of all Ace continually sees Leland Gaunt's eyes changing color. Mm-hmm. They never stay stationary. They shake hands and his touch does not revolt him. In fact, his touch empowers him and makes him feel stronger. 
That is fucking cool. Yeah, he <laughs> says it's like electricity, like blue fire or something like that. Do you think that that is what Gaunt is allowing him to see and putting into his touch? Or is it something about, you know, Ace's character and maybe what he's been through that... His pure evil is inside <laughs> him? <laughs> I, it could be either way. I, I personally think it's Gaunt doing it on purpose. Yeah. yeah. To... Uh, because there's this really cool section, there's this really cool bit about how, however Ace Merrill has always been this, like, alpha tough guy, mm-hmm. like so many other alpha tough guys, he is just waiting for the real power to come in so he can step in line. Yeah. The second someone that is actually bigger and stronger and tougher than him comes by, he just is uh a pushover he's like just is a fucking piss ant yeah because he's he's just a small town tough guy yeah no matter how tough he thinks he is the second he finds out someone's tougher yeah fuck that (laughs) can i I tell you guys my favorite part about the scene yeah because it revealed something so cool that i've been wondering about the you know all these episodes and reading up to this i'm like okay what are these items actually because mm-hmm. he keeps seeing the book, it, it kind of changes back and forth from the book Pop wrote or didn't write to Treasure Island. And Gaunt, he's like kind of putting him on, under his hypnosis. And he's, you know, confused about why this book is changing. And he tells him that maybe it's not a book at all. Maybe all the really special things that he sells to people aren't what they seem to be. They could be gray things with only one remarkable property and that property is the ability to shape to take the shape of things that haunt people's dreams and they might even be dreams themselves and i was like (gasps) and it it reminded me of um that scene in the labyrinth okay so when the old junk lady's trying to brainwash sarah into thinking that she's back at home and everything's fine and she notices something's a little off and then she starts to figure out that it's an illusion and she's tearing down the walls and she's in the junkyard and everything around her that a minute ago looked like all her her things at home and her bedroom and her prized possessions it's all just a junk so it's like 1408 John Cusack tearing things down only to find out he's still in the room. Well, for, for you, uh, Josh, uh, put it like this. It's the doctor's ID card, except evil. Oh, yeah, cool. Okay. <laughs> the uh, slightly psychic paper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Ace, feeling this new power, signs on to take this job. He gets the book. That has a map to all the treasure and all the money that Pop buried, allegedly, in but the country. A uh, uh, map that is only readable when <laughs> high off your ass yes! on magical demon cocaine. God, that's awesome. Uh, remember this for l- later. Uh, Mr. Gaunt gives him cocaine, mm. and it's the purest cocaine he's ever had. And he asks, where do you get this shit? And he says, the Plains of Lang. Mm-hmm. Remember that. Oh, all right. And he accepts his first job, which is going to Boston to pick up a car. Very simple. Easy peasy. But on his way out, he briefly crosses paths with Alan Pangborn. Let's bring it down and talk about Brian Rusk. Brian is sick as hell after finding out about what happened to Wilma and Nettie. And realizing he's just sitting in bed thinking about that he has basically participated in murder for a card. And he, so he's, he's traded his soul for a card. And uh, it occurs to him that that neighbor 
hollered at him after he threw those rocks. So he has been seen by somebody and he's just positive. The sheriff's going to find out. Sheriff's going to come here. I'm going to have to tell him everything because I'm a kid and he's the sheriff and that's how it works. And Gaunt calls him and is just like, don't worry about it, buddy. You're square. Uh, Sheriff Pangborn's going to have plenty of other things to worry about. (laughs) So he's getting calmed down by Leland while his mother is dancing to Elvis. And all of this happens. And the section ends with him saying, that's when Brian Rusk, an 11 year old boy first contemplated suicide. That line is when I immediately had a fucking flashback to what happens later. And I went, no, that yeah. that has to, that can't happen. I also that thought I misremembered be. that. Mm. No, no, it is fucking brutal. It's exactly what you think is going to happen. It's so tragic because he's just a fucking kid. And none of this is, hit, like, he did not, in so much horror, like, you want the people that get their comeuppance to have done something. Yeah. You know, and his just innocence is a bummer. Yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah. fucking bummer, you're, man. At eleven, you're so short-sighted. Like, yeah. how how could he have ever in a million years made the leap that throwing mud on sheets would lead to murder? And so many of our King stories are about kids going through something terrible and persevering and coming out on top. And winning oh, that. Tell that battle. to Mark Petrie. Oh, wait, no, Mark Petrie <laughs> survives. Never mind. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, was thinking of the always. guy that tell gets. Tell that to Mark Petrie's parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was thinking of the, the dentist or whatever that gets home alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now we jump to Sally Radcliffe, who we learned earlier Everett was going to be pulling his prank, putting an envelope in Lester Pratt's car that she's borrowing. CM, do you want to tell us what Sally Radcliffe finds? Sally Ratcliffe is so sexually repressed. I can hardly tolerate it. <laughs> I know that's not what you asked me about, but she, along with every other woman that we have met so far, except for Myra and Cora, <laughs> do not or have never or have only once and never again somehow had an orgasm. And the only <laughs> orgasms we get yeah. are from these two women which King describes in a way that makes it so disgusting. <laughs> so women's well, sexuality... Well, also gets the over-the-pants HJ. Yeah. Well, uh, no, she she's in the category with the other women oh, okay. who, who did not have her sexual awakening. <laughs> until, until a man let them. Yeah. Until <laughs> yeah, a man let them. <laughs> right. it's, oh, God, no, that hurt. The sexuality shit in this book <laughs> is whack. And I wanted to bring that up, too, that... By and large, all of the men that go to needful things are, there are a plethora of reasons why they want what they need or why why they are needful of these things. Money, power, nostalgia, greed. Even Slopey Dodd has one of the most interesting, just because he likes it. It's yeah. just mm-hmm. the... The pure want of having this thing. It, it's varied and interesting. Almost every single woman who comes into Needful Things is like, I need to come because I can only do that through the power of Satan. 
<laughs> and this sucks. Yeah. That yeah. tracks. Yeah. Uh, our orgasms are evil. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Sally Reckler. Yeah, sorry. So to the actual question you asked me, Josh. So Sally finds this envelope. She's getting into Lester Pratt's car because she had to borrow it because her car is out of commission. And she just sees this this envelope sticking out from under the seat. And she picks it up and it has the word lovely written across the top. And she notices right away that it's a woman's handwriting. So... I mean, haha, Mr. Gaunt talks to himself and writes like a girl. <laughs> and she opens it, and what she finds is a letter to Lester from his ex girlfriend and a picture. And in this picture, he is sitting in, I think, the Mellow Tiger right. um, in a booth with his ex girlfriend, whose name I can't remember. It doesn't matter. And he has his hand up her skirt and they are, she can see like kind of the side and back of his head, but she can tell it's him because of mole he has on his arm and he's wearing his tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> like all high school coaches. We're going to talk about Lester Pratt later, yeah. but he is one of the funniest fucking characters. <laughs> so she, she reads this terrible letter, which is basically this chick saying like, hey, you know, thanks for giving me my first and only orgasm. <laughs> um, Without the power of Satan. Yeah. Here's a picture of us together and don't worry about your prudish girlfriend. And it's also weird because this, we start to see Sally in this scene and then in, in the things to come that happen with her kind of find her sexual awakening again in a disturbing way. Yeah. She likes being mean, which uh -huh. is like a little too much. Yeah, and, and so she gets pissed. Understandably <laughs> so. Oh, she keeps calling her a she keeps like saying that chippy. <laughs> that chippy. Where's my chippy? And uh what is it? How does she call Lester? Lester Big Prick Pratt. Yeah, because yeah, it makes a reference to how big his dick is. That's <laughs> something we all need to know. Her reaction, which I mean it you wouldn't see a picture like that and think, oh, clearly this is black magic. <laughs> so you would think that he was actually cheating on you. But especially since this is in 1991. Yeah. Photoshop isn't even an idea like that's sci-fi so when we when we get to lester and hear his internal thoughts about her it is sad you yeah guys. yeah it's tragic it's it's sad and until it's not well yeah well, i have an interesting thought about that sure later, but i don't uh, yeah it, it, i think it is more sad because he's a, such a dork yeah and like they're they're it, left alone they are two good people. Yeah. I believe that. He's just a dude out playing touch football with the boys. <laughs> well, just a grown adult man out playing touch football with his friends at a tent revival. And Sally's, it's even more tragic for Sally because she confides in a friend mm. who is secretly pleased that this happened first. That's so fucked oh, up. That's kind of how a lot of women are, unfortunately. Yeah, I have met women. Yeah. <laughs> but, but she's like, oh, well, Lester's looked at me like he wonders what my soggy underwear look like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was, I regret that. You did that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, I did. And, and then she's happy that Sally's so upset. I mean, she's also sad for her friend, but part of yeah. her is like, well, she's so pretty. Like, this feels kind of good to see her brought down a peg. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Cool friends you got, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the problem when you are Miss Perfect in a small town. Everybody's waiting to see 
the person at the top fall. Mm-hmm. That I think that's just small town life. So we get uh, a glimpse of Polly back at work, her hands working. She's actually sewing a dress by hand for the first time in forever. And she's like, oh, they're they're doing pretty good. And then her internal monologue is like, oh, this is, it's been, I don't know, six Years? months since oh, I yeah. could, like, close my fist without crying. Mm-hmm. And she feels guilty because she is getting kind of her life, everything she wants back together, but is dealing with the loss of Nettie and feeling responsible for that because she helped bring her back to town. Polly's grief feels so real and sweet and sad. Mm -hmm. Another just great character, character work. And she's the one who's organizing the funeral arrangements and calling Nettie's family and just taking care of all that stuff. So it really sucks. (laughs) So that a team of five people total can show up to Nettie's funeral Uh, while the entire church shows up to Wilma Jerzyk's. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's it's just such a short scene, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a great visual. It's mm-hmm. very cinematic of the five of them gathered around this grave while you hear yeah. "Peace be with you" echoing in the mm-hmm. background. It's very sad. Yeah. Next, we we get to check back with Buster, who's just being magnanimous doing great deeds for the town. <laughs> Do, doing stuff that will definitely not come back no, later. No, which is, uh, we shouldn't even mention it because it, it, just, <laughs> yeah. it can't be important to the plot that he orders 20 cases of high explo- like high-grade explosive dynamite. Probably one of those loose threads. Yeah. The classic, classic Stephen King loose thread. In a story like this. <laughs> it's a red herring. Yeah. Well, there's only like 600 pages. You can't get to that. <laughs> so Ace gets to Boston. And uh, the coolest. This is my I, favorite. I've, wanted, I've been wanting to get your get your impression on this, Ben. Tell us about Ace in Boston. I have so much to say because there are so many parallels to other things, King and otherwise. Ace gets to Boston and he's looking for the street he has been told, and he is sure he's lost because he's been going down curving streets that seem abandoned like there's no one there but yet he feels like he's being watched and eventually he arrives at this garage that he thinks this can't be the right place because it it's so old no one can be there (laughs) and on the side of this garage is a single piece of graffiti (laughs) That I want to talk about for a half an hour right now. <laughs> Good, because I didn't get the reference. <gasps> Yog Sothoth rules. <laughs> <laughs> Yog Sothoth is the fucking coolest thing H.P. Lovecraft ever created. He is, it is, a malevolent, sentient universe. Jeez. <laughs> he is. As big or bigger, and as old or older as our universe, but outside of it. And he is uh, described, usually, as a series of unfathomably large, orbiting white balls of light in pure blackness. What is, what is, does that remind anyone of anything? Yeah, the Null. 
yeah, right. Okay, we've got it. We've got revival. Yeah. We have the deadlines. Deadlines. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. The, the it is Yog basically is the Todash darkness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Um, it's fucking scary as hell, <laughs> and also it's like Cthulhu's grandpa, basically, <laughs> uh, which is very cool. The other cool thing I wanted to talk about is the way this area is set up. He he sees this graffiti and he thinks it, it gets caught in his mind. And he thinks at once, once Yogg-Sothoth rules, and then he stops himself because he says that thinking that name in this place seems like a bad idea. <laughs> seems like a dangerous yeah. idea. There's a Stephen King short story called Crouch's End. Have either of you two read it? No. No. no? It's one of maybe four or five King short stories that legitimately scared my shit out. Like, <laughs> it is a legitimately upsetting story. It's about this American couple on vacation in London, and they're walking and just taking this, just wandering through London when they realize they've been walking in this area with cobblestone streets that are curving, and they realize they're completely lost. And they see a, a two little kids, and one of them has this claw-like hand and it ends with them coming to this like big uh cul-de-sac where from the ground emerges a great old one and the woman escapes but she lives the rest of her life sometimes she goes into her closet and a cuddle uh, like hurls up it curls up into a little ball and repeats the name Shiva, uh, fuck, I'm going to fuck this up real bad. (laughs) Shub Nigorath, the black goat, mother of a thousand young. (laughs) Josh looks... What the (laughs) fuck? Another elder god or outer god or whatever you classify uh, Mm -hmm. it as. The wife, quote unquote, of Yogg-Sothoth. Oh. And the fact that they the, the the areas, the way they're described, are so similar is so cool. That's badass. And uh, I just, I can ha- go read Crouch's End, and you can just feel this part of this book is so fucking scary. That you can just see him driving down the wrong alley and reality ripping apart. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds amazing. So good. Anyway, all he finds is a self-opening garage <laughs> and uh, a car that does not exist. And a recorded message for him that Gaunt could not have done the after he met him. And it's not mm. even plugged in and it's playing for him. Yeah. And it's covered in dust and... It's like a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Yeah. <laughs> Which is already spooky. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a, this decades-old recording that's been waiting for him forever, along with the Tucker Talisman. Which, which mm-hmm. fucking awesome <laughs> Very great. So well, he, not he's, real. He's, it's <laughs> not a real car. Yeah. Which is fantastic. He The tape recorder tells him, load up these crates into my car, drive it back. Everything will be fine, don't worry. He opens the crates, and there's blasting caps... A shitload of guns and ammo clips to go with all of those guns. So, being a little freaked out with everything, as anyone has the right to be, he thinks, I'm just going to grab some of these guns 
and I'm going to beat Bricks and get out of here and figure something else out. The tape recorder turns back on by itself and it's got being like, hey, if you do that, you'll live in a nightmare for eternity. <laughs> and he's like, well, and he puts it back and he loads up the Tucker talisman. It's this yellow monster of a car with three headlights, with three headlights, which is badass. And he starts loading things up and there's only one item in the trunk when he opens it. And it's a bottle of cocaine that says snort me. <laughs> and he says, yes, please. <laughs> and he loads it up and he realizes I'm driving from Boston to Castle Rock with a crate of guns and dynamite sticking out <laughs> from the back. I can easily be so fucked right now. But oh, one thing I forgot to mention, yes. the cocaine reminded me. Uh, the Plains of Lang, all all I was going to say is that's another Lovecraft mm-hmm. thing. Oh, okay. I love when King gets real Lovecraft. <laughs> when he first said it's from the Plains of Lang, mm-hmm. I thought it was a reference to uh, Eyes of the Dragon. Yeah. Because that sounded yeah. very much like Eyes of the Dragon, something yeah. thr- uh, flag. But then he didn't have. burst into flames, and I was like, oh, it's definitely <laughs> not that. Uh, but the this car needs no gas. It seemingly knows where to go. It It is a built-in GPS. The turning signal just turns on right before he's supposed to turn. It pays its own tolls, which is awesome. That's like the perfect car. And it's invisible to cops, <laughs> which is the best part of that car. He's like driving. He's trying to stay the, the speed limit, but the car feels like it wants to go faster. And he flies by this cop going like 70 and nothing happens. And he's like, all right. Let's throw this sumbush down to like the 90s hundreds. Let's do it. This reminds me, this car just reminds me so much of Christine. And it's different in a lot of ways. But as far as the things that I've read, this book and Christine, the vehicles have the most personality. Mm. See, I, I haven't read it, but I was going to say it makes me want to read from a Buick 8. Mm-hmm. Because I know that's very, it has something to do with the low men. And yeah. the car is otherworldly and uh i bet i bet there's some sort of link there (laughs) (laughs) probably he ace gets back earlier than expected and we find out that there is not a single product in gaunt's back room so nothing he people have heard him back here rummaging for things Mm -hmm. there's nothing back there Gaunt pays him in cocaine eats a rat for dinner no big deal (laughs) have the see i've had that i did not like that don't kill Hey, at least it was dead. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And then we jump over to Lester Pratt coming home from his foot touchies, which is what (laughs) the cool kids call touch football. And he's looking forward to see. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. That took me a second. That was a slow burn right there. It's like recess. Yeah, it's like recess. uh, Foot touchies. Uh, <laughs> God damn it! Uh, but he's looking forward to seeing Sally and accidentally walks balls first into his own car. <laughs> like you do. Like you do. And he says, and I quote, aloud to the world, I want to point out, Rudy Toot Toot, sweet little Sally in her birthday suit. Out loud! Uh, Lester Platt is a cartoon character. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's described as always having 
a blue tracksuit on, <laughs> like he lives in the fucking Royal Tannenbaums. He has a high and tight a crew cut. A crew cut. That's what it is. Which at one point is called a his screaming hairdo. <laughs> just a weird turn of phrase. And the just this. Oh yeah, and they multiple times point out that his fists are the size of canned hands. He's built as fuck. He is and, a brick shit house. And and he says, Rudy too. <laughs> it's I was instantly like, I fucking love this guy. <laughs> this guy's a fucking idiot, and I love him. I just love it because it happens. He runs balls first into his car and is holding his dick, <laughs> and then he says that. And I just imagine he that he hasn't let go of his balls yet, <laughs> and it's just the, the image is hilarious to me. I uh, I started just for fun imagining him as Coach Steve, Big Mouth oh, on Netflix. <laughs> shit! Uh, I imagine him as Coach Z from Homestar Runner. Ah, there you go. Uh, Rudy Toot. Rudy Toot. Is that a... That's nah, a thing. Never mind. <laughs> Please cut that. <laughs> no one knows what Homestar Runner is in 2020. <laughs> the next chapter begins with uh, Lucille Dunham, who's never important again, as far as CM knows. <laughs> I just did that to fuck with her. Um, <laughs> and she is Gaunt's first appointment on this Tuesday. I also want to point out, this book started... Thursday. Yeah. It's been oh, okay. less than a week. I was going to ask because I f- if it feels like months. Yeah. No, this whole book. It hasn't even been a week yet. Wow. And he has a checklist by his door because Tuesday's by appointment only. And throughout this chapter, it continually touches back with him as he just grabs a pen, checks another name off the list of his appointments. And so it builds that scope of how many people are mm-hmm. getting these items and doing these pranks. And he basically says that it's it's almost time to flip this entire town on its head. Is and it this the point where he says, uh, the, the narration says, on this, which is basically the last day of Castle Rock's existence mm-hmm. as yeah. a town? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I heard that and I was like... <laughs> Dude works fast. Yeah. Like, you gotta give him that. He works hard for the money. Alan gets uh, some good news about his double murder. Some new evidence. We know now there's no way that Wilma killed Nettie's dog because the times don't match up, the handwritings don't match, and there's also a partial print on the doorknob. And the neighbor mentioned seeing a kid at the time. So Alan now has a new string of leads to go down the road of to see if he can get to the bottom of this. There's a great Three Stooges scene of John LaPointe. Uh, what? I was going to say the same <laughs> fucking thing. This was so weird. <laughs> the tonal shift in this one <laughs> little bit. I hate the Three Stooges. <laughs> You're not a slapstick I, fan? I hate slapstick comedy. And this was like reading a chapter out of a different book for a moment. It 1000% is. And, and I didn't, because I like the characters so much, I wasn't like, oh, get rid of this. But I was like, wow, this. And and now I know, you know, it was lightening things up so that I would be completely crushed last night at 1.30 when I finished <laughs> it and then cried myself to sleep. <laughs> I also like, and this is probably me reading way more into it than it should be, but I love that there's like, 
him falling all over his own office just to fucking later in the day get the shit kicked out of him all over the same office. Yeah, well, that's the one thing is there feels like so much happens between... We should explain. John LaPointe is tearing the office apart. He has piles of paperwork and everything everywhere because he lost his wallet, which is the only piece of information you need to take away from this scene. Well, it has a picture of Sally in it. Which is also something we learned in the prologue at the very, very beginning, is that John LaPointe was sitting in his police car looking at the photo of him and his ex-girlfriend. To be fair, it's like 300 pages in by now, so we needed a refresh. Sally dumped John for Lester. Yeah. Uh, Um, But he essentially just goes ass over elbows and just... Literally, it's like five pages of a cop falling over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Alan tries to help, and he gets a pie in the face, and John accidentally pokes him in the eye. It's great. Norris Woodrick tries to put a ladder somewhere, and he accidentally knocks everybody out. <laughs> it's great. Myra Evans shows up to Henry Beaufort, so it goes up to his house, takes a bayonet and slashes his tires and tears up his car. This is... Okay, sorry. I, I have to focus in on the... Th- thing about women and how they look and how they fuck because king makes it weird (laughs) i felt kind of bad because they he describes her as for like the first and only moment in her life that she is that she looks beautiful like her her eyes are like bright with purpose because normally she's just like this limp dick nothing (laughs) yeah she's the the she's been saved from being a fat hog by uh, by fucking Elvis constantly. Evil, uh, evil masturbation. And the but way she's she... not masturbating. She's getting fucked by Elvis. Yeah, theoretically, they, she's having these fantasies when she holds her painting naked in bed. That her and Elvis are doing naughty, naughty, naughty things. It's described as progressively weirder. <laughs> and yes. I demand to know what Stephen King thinks weird sex is. Ben, when completely normal sex to him is lifting your girlfriend <laughs> above your head and fingering her for the first time in her life. Uh, ben, do you think you could uh, do some research and see if Bango Skank has written any, <laughs> has, uh, found any of the hidden chapters? Oh, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. Uh, she fucks up this car, leaves a note under the windshield saying, don't ever cut me off or keep my car again, my car keys again. And uh, this is a very small throwaway, but she specifically points out that there's a crow watching her do this. Yeah, that reminded me of the stand. Yeah. I mean, Gaunt could 100% be flag. I don't think he... Well, I guess I... Well, you guys I mean, have this and I haven't. From everything we've seen, like, you could make a case for it if you really wanted to. You could, but he seems like something different. He reminds me more of it and uh, the guy who feeds on... Oh, Dandello. Dandello, oh, yeah. Oh, Happy It. Yeah. Yeah, Happy It. Then we cut over across town and Norris Ridgwick is completing his deed, which is fucking up Hugh Priest's truck and leaving a note implying that Henry Beaufort is who did it. We also see that Norris peeks into Hugh's house and sees him holding and cuddling just this ratty, disgusting foxtail and is so disgusted by it. And when he sees it and describes it, he immediately thinks, man, I'm glad my fishing pole doesn't oh, look like that. God, yeah. What is his fishing pole, you guys? It was It's just like a 
stick. He'd fire the woods. <laughs> uh, no, I love that this is the first time we see someone else seeing someone else's needful thing outside mm. of the shop. I would love just like a rundown of everyone. To see everyone. what everything really is. Yeah. Every time a woman destroys something, her nipples get hard. But when <laughs> Norris is busting shit up and other guys are doing stuff, they don't get boners. Well, I think it's implied. Do, do we need to run the boner talk sting? <laughs> the the boner talk thing. No, they... Oh, anyway, whatever. I mean, I think Stephen King just assumes no, you know they're rock hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I assume because... Uh, and every time I do vandalism. Yeah. No. It's, no? J- it's... Okay, fine. <laughs> Before we end this chapter, we get what I think is a terrible and beautiful scene with Slopey Dodd and Leland Gaunt. We talked earlier, like, Ben, you referenced that he keeps the teapot just because he wants it. But mm. there's an amazing moment that happens in there. CM, you want to talk about it? I had a different take on this, and now I'm kind of embarrassed and I feel weird. And I've talked a lot about sex in this episode already, so... Go for it. Okay, don't judge me too harshly. Slippy Dad is a middle schooler, and he has a stutter, so he's one of Sally's students, and he comes into Needful Things because he just had this feeling like he needed to go there, so he faked sick at school and got sent home and walked over to the shop. While there, Mr. Gaunt asks him about his Needful Thing, what he purchased, and we find out that it's a cast iron teapot. And for some reason, like he he told Mr. Gaunt that it was for his mom, but we find out that it was actually for him. He never gave it to his mom. And he's very embarrassed. And he's just like, well, I, you know, I just like it. Mr. Gaunt's like, that's okay. And I don't know why, but I totally took it as a weird sexual fetish thing. Why? I don't. Because maybe because of the shame in this book is so full of sexual shame. <laughs> I was See, like, oh, what's he yeah. I thought his intention when he wanted it was to give his mom a present, but then just once he had it, he just couldn't help. Like, he he loved it, so he wanted to get it for his mom, but then the more he had it, he was like, I just really like this for me. See, I just thought he couldn't be a boy buying a teapot, so he wanted it, and he lied about who it was for to I, save face. I actually honestly did have that thought for a second. Okay. Um, And I was, like, trying to remember. I'm like, it does this turn out to be like a... But then I just thought it reminded me of Salad Fingers. Because <laughs> <laughs> he likes how rusty spoons feel. I get it. And, like... I don't know. This kid just likes how this thing feels. Yeah. Whatever. That You know what? That's fine. All right. So just me. Anyway, what's really sad about this scene is that Gaunt's trying to have a conversation with him. And I took this as Gaunt didn't want to listen to him stutter because he's you know, a fucking asshole. And so he takes away his stutter temporarily. But slope, it's described as slopey feeling some knot in his brain just coming undone. And he can speak, and he is so happy about it, but we find out that he cannot keep this. As soon as he leaves the shop, he'll have a stutter back, which I'd be like, you will have to physically remove me from your shop. <laughs> yeah, it's it shows just the mindless, pointless evil mm-hmm. of yeah. uh, Gaunt. Because he could have been like, hey, here's a teapot that makes you not stutter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you drink awesome. tea out but of it, then he's like, stutter. It'd be like going to like an arcade and trading in your tickets 
for like a, a Chinese finger trap. And then the guy being like, that's weird. Like, those are cool, but you could have had this diamond necklace. <laughs> what? They're, I want that. Nah, you already got the, the finger trap, man. I can't give you two things. <laughs> and the way he explains, we talked uh, last episode about him kind of using that dumb little kid logic on Brian and just how tragic that mm. is to see. So he tells Slopey that he can't. He has to have his stutter back because if he just wasn't stuttering anymore, the whole town would know something was up and that might ruin Gaunt's plans. Yeah. He gives a lot of weight to this kid, too. Yeah. But Slopey <laughs> don't care. True. He has a teapot and he's set. He's going <laughs> to fuck that teapot later. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> now, uh, the next day is the, the funerals that we talked about. And Alan notices how improved Polly's hands are. And she finally decides afterwards to come clean and say she got this thing from Gaunt. There was no price. She's going to go back and discuss price right now. And he plans on going with her, but he also needs to leave to go catch Brian after school to talk to him about what he saw at the Jersey's house. They spend forever fighting in the parking lot of needful things. Like it's a Walmart. <laughs> and to the point where, Alan has to leave. So Polly has to go in by herself. And I just love that it cuts to Gaunt just standing in the window, just like watching it. <laughs> I, I feel like this is really significant too, because in this scene and then the scene earlier where he is, he be right before he runs into Ace, he is actually going, he's on his way to needful things. He's yeah. like, you know what? I'm the sheriff. I, I've seen people go in and out all day. And if I want to go meet this guy, I can do that. I really need to do this. And right when he gets to the door, he's about to knock and he gets that call from Henry who's telling him he found some new evidence. So now he's with Polly and he has just this instinct because we've talked about him having experienced the supernatural before in the dark half. And he, he doesn't have a good feeling about the amulet, what's going on and what Gaunt has planned, like what the price is for this. And he mm -hmm. thinks he's just going to like rip her off. And so he was going to go in with her and he keeps stopping and thinking, okay, my first duty is to this town as the sheriff. If I don't go now, I'm going to miss this kid. I need to leave. And it makes what happens later, considering Alan's history. Yeah. I feel like that's going to be a huge thing. Yeah. Th this section and this whole bit of the destruction of Alan and Polly's relationship, it happens so quickly. And it's literally a couple pages. They argue once. Uh, and they say, like, they never argue. But they have one argument. And then one other little thing that Gaunt plants to push them over the edge. It completely destroys their bond. And I felt like it was too quick. Like, it, it's... I felt like I would feel like it would be too quick. But it's written so well, and the steps make so much sense in each of their characters yeah. that it is 1,000% believable, and it's uh, a really, I think, uh, tremendous mark of King's ability to write characters well. Now it's time to jump back over to Sally Ratcliffe because it's time for her to play her prank. Ben, do you want to tell us about Sally's prank? Oh, oh so gross. Fuck. <laughs> okay, this, this character's arc is the other weirdest thing in this book. Okay, there's a character that might have been mentioned up to this point. He's 
the principal? Frank Jewett, yeah. The principal of the middle school, Frank Jewett, who's this little round man who's uh seems very meek. And uh Sally, while he's in a meeting, sneaks into his office and um she has been told to leave a big manila envelope on his desk and also break into a bottom drawer. This hurts to remember. It's yucky. It's real It's real gross. yucky. Uh, it's it's kitty porn that this dude brought to his job? Yeah. <sighs> anyway, so she breaks into this bottom drawer and she throws these magazines about his office and then leaves. And the whole time she's like, I'm super horny about this for some reason. <laughs> It's gross. Yeah. I had not thought about it in context of <laughs> the the magazines. It's extra if, gross. If you find kitty porn in your boss, the principal's desk, you will never be horny again. Yeah. She like scream laughs at it. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, look what we got here. No. I think I think her joy is coming from she's doling out comeuppance. And I mean, I think to be that's fair. where yeah. her to be oh. fair, the dude fucking deserves yeah, everything. For sure. Yes, that, but still, that's boner destroying. It absolutely <laughs> is. It should be, anyway. But, um... I love that it's as she's leaving for the day that she's like, I wonder where that envelope came from. Ah, fuck it. And leaves. Yeah, it, it's such a, a fucked up scene. And you're like, ugh, gross. I hate this character. The weird part is everything he does after this. Yes. Is another weird veer into King trying to do very dark comedy. Yes. it's It gets weird. It sure does. It gets real weird. So uh, Jewett goes back to his office with some of his co-workers, sees all of his paraphernalia all over the office, and in, like immediately freezes in shock and is running through his brain all the ways he can try to spin this. How long it took him to amass this collection, always thinking the FBI was going to drop on him. All the while, the two teachers and also two, two students. 12-year-old girls see yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I could probably get away with this. <laughs> I can spend this. Fucking piece of shit. Well, he finally opens the envelope and it is a, it's a blackmail letter from George T. Nelson, who's the shop teacher. I could, you guys. Craig T. Nelson? Yeah. The whole time? Every, yeah. You yeah. could not not imagine Craig T. Nelson? I, I wrote Craig T. Nelson <laughs> several times on accident in my notes. But he knows that's the only person that knows his shame because they ran into each other at a, a party. pedophile party. Yeah. Yeah. And they have, they took photos together, I guess, to commemorate this great friendship. And the letter basically says, Hey, I have to get the fuck out of town. Sorry to do this to you, pal, but I need $2,000 by tonight. Or all these photos are going everywhere. And his face is like smudged out, but the principal's face is crystal clear. Frank Jewett sucks. Yeah, he does. <laughs> After some time of waiting, Pangborn finally gets his one-on-one with Brian Rusk. And this scene is so troubling Mm -hmm. because he can see the pain all over Brian Rusk's face and he knows in his heart this kid wants to tell me everything but he 
can't. He gives him like his uh, the alibi story in the most mechanical way possible. So he knows there's something more. And just when he feels like he's going to break through, he gets a call on the radio and it fucks the whole thing up. And he's then Brian Rusk goes about his his day. I want to ask this question later because it's tied to the final scene. But talking about it now and thinking about what is to come for Brian, I was wondering if because he almost tells him it's like he starts to and then the radio interrupts. And of course, I thought that was Gaunt's doing like causing something to happen at a time that would interrupt Alan from getting further in his investigation. And I wondered if what happens is also Gaunt, like whispering in Brian's head and and maybe if it weren't for that, Brian would have had a different ending. Like he can feel him there during the because he's a loo- he's he's a loose cannon now because mm-hmm. he almost spilled the beans to Alan. So Gaunt can't necessarily control him. So he has to take him out. I don't know. I think at this point Gaunt has broken him so completely that yeah, unfortunately that it it's just a lost cause. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, like you said, um, the call on the radio isn't Gaunt's doing it's a call from uh Sheila from Sheila saying the evidence of the the prince the bloody prince that they found at Nettie's house has come back and that's definitely not something that Gaunt wants and is something that he is currently in the middle of making sure is irrelevant Mm -hmm. so I yeah I really think it's just this is Brian's been pushed over the edge and maybe maybe he would have said maybe he would have told but it's just sad because alan has all these moments where he's so close to something and he's interrupted either by plan or by happenstance and later he's going to be thinking about that and Mm. realizing the cost of that missed opportunity yeah it's just it's just dominoes the rest of the book all the rest of the book is just the first half of the book set up all the dominoes and now they're starting to fall. Mm-hmm. And regardless of, I, Gaunt doesn't need to do much at this point. Yeah. As we see from the, the like last page of this chapter. Yeah. Let's, uh, he's let's, almost done. Let's finish uh, this word at the end of this chapter. We'll finish setting up the dominoes that start the insanity. That's chapter 17. Oh God. I thought we were on chapter no, 17. No, no. Fuck. Okay. So Polly returns home and finds a fake return envelope from the child welfare of San Francisco. And it's a letter saying, uh, dear Alan Pangborn, the information you want is highly inappropriate and maybe illegal. uh, And it's CC'd to her. So she knows. And Gaunt has put in her head that he's probably looked further into your past. He doesn't believe you. He doesn't trust you. And this is the proof she needs that Alan has been digging into her past without her permission. Oh, one quick thing. Uh, the child department of welfare or whatever mm. in San Francisco, the address is listed as six, six, six street or something <laughs> like that. But and that is like, the address. Oh, this has to be fake. But then yeah. she's like, man, I remember six, six, six. Street." the same thing. I was like, Okay. <laughs> Sure, I guess. It's like, oh, he can't hide his evil address. <laughs> <laughs> his evil address. Uh, Lester gets into his car that previously, the, the night before, Sally defaced with calling him a cheater and writing it in lipstick on his car. He gets into the car and sees a wallet under the seat in the exact same place where Sally found a letter. He opens the wallet and it's John the Point's wallet. 
And inside, he sees the snapshot of John and Sally together. And Slopey Dodd doing his Slopey, the Slopester, as they call him. <laughs> no, no one set, calls him that. Apparently his friends do. That is the most king thing <laughs> in the book so far. But Slopey Dodd's there just in time to be like, oh, hey, I know that guy. I saw him and Sally just mouthing each other hard outside of school. Also, he drove your car, and Lester's like, he did what to my car? <laughs> no, he says it in his new soft and silky voice. That bit is hilarious. <laughs> Which they say 20 times? Yes. <laughs> we find out, uh, we jump back to Alan, who was getting that call from the, the prince, and we know for a fact now the prince came back, Hugh Priest was the person who killed Nettie's dog. Immediately after he gets off that call, Polly is on the line waiting to talk to him, and she rips him apart, knowing full well they're on a completely open line. Anybody can hear it. So it's the most confusing argument anyone's ever <laughs> had, because they have to both be like, you know the thing from the stuff? And he's like, whoa, I don't... Stuff's not things. Uh, look, I have a thing about the <laughs> the stuff I told you about, but don't think I'm doing that. I liked in this part there, we've kind of had that like small town gossipy sort of impression that is the, co- is the reason that Alan and Polly took things slow and were very discreet in the beginning because, you know, they wanted to be respectful and they know how small towns are. And this is where we find out because Sheila's kind of hearing this and she hears how upset Polly is. That in reality, this town views Alan and Polly as almost like a fairy tale couple. Yeah. There is no animosity towards them being together. There's no, you know, question about whether it's appropriate. It's like, oh, <laughs> and it's all ruined. It really is. Now, chapter 17. We'll go as fast as the book does. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so this last chapter, we're going to talk about it story by story because everything, all of these things pretty much happen at once. And so you'll get a paragraph, jump to the next story, jump to the next story. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to track, but we're going to do our best to go from character to character and match timelines where we can. So let's talk about Henry Beaufort and Hugh Priest because that's the big one for this, uh, where it starts off. They both come out, find out their car is trashed. It's been set up. It's the other person. Hugh carjacks an old man wearing only shorts and a foxtail. (laughs) Him, not the man. (laughs) Hugh Priest played by the guy that plays Trevor in Grand Theft Auto V. (laughs) Nailed it. Yes. Andy Clutterbuck is on his way to to arrest Hugh Priest. They completely miss each other. So Clut is hanging out by Hugh Priest's house. Henry bursts into the Mellow Tiger because he has a shotgun, an illegal shotgun under the counter. And he's like, I'm going to take this and I'm going to blow Hugh Priest away with this. But luckily, Billy Tupper is there to calm him down and be like, dude, you want a drink? Let's talk this out. Let's calm down. I I love that part because it, uh, of course, like as they're both freaking out and driving to like get their guns to kill each other. That's the one of the first points. It's like, this doesn't feel earned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, they just trashed their cars and they're immediately like, murder. Yeah. And when uh, Henry goes in and this kid, Billy, is like, let's just have a drink and talk it out. They do. And Henry's <laughs> like, all right. Yeah. He's like, I'm oh, was I really going to murder a guy over a car? Yeah. Right. And then yeah. he loves his car yeah. for sure. But still, it yeah. calms him down enough that he's like, I. 
I got I let that get to me. It shows just that even a split second of rational thought undoes Leland God's plans. Yeah. But he's so good at his job <laughs> that that he doesn't have to worry about it. Doesn't that matter. Much. You know, like I would murder somebody over my books, but books are better than cars. That's true. You I... can fit more in your house. Is <laughs> that the qualifier? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anything you anything you can fit more of in your house is better. Okay. Rice is the best thing. <laughs> Name a thing better than rice. You can't. You can fit so much of it in your house. Sand. Sand. Fuck. Ooh. I love sand. <laughs> anyway. That's why all rich people have sandboxes. <laughs> Hugh Priest rolls up to Needful Things and rushes inside, and Gaunt ticks him off his list. It's the last name on Gaunt's checklist. He knew he was coming, and he knew exactly when he was coming. Gaunt basically says, hey, here's a gun if you want to go fuck that guy up. (laughs) This is another example of the, like, magical versus non-magical aspects of Leland Gaunt. It is hysterical to me that he's like, have the exact thing you want the most in the world. And then by like a week later, he's like, have a gun. (laughs) It's so funny. Hugh takes him up on it, grabs the gun, makes his way. Henry, meanwhile, has calmed down. He decides to call the police and it's nobody's answering. And then suddenly he hears some bangs and Billy, who stepped outside, screams, comes back in. He's been shot through the neck. Mm and dies on the floor. Hugh Priest comes in, just starts firing at the bar, takes a shot, it tears off half of Henry's face. Yeah. (laughs) Henry ducks down, grabs the shotgun, brings it up, they fire at the same time, disintegrate, the shotgun disintegrates Hugh Priest's chest. The bullet from Hugh Priest pierces Henry's lung. And And that's one loose, uh, loose thread taken care of. Done and done. But Henry laying on the floor, this this is where it gets so tense because it continually cuts back after other things are happening to Henry just getting weaker and weaker, mm-hmm. holding the phone, hoping to God someone answers. Why isn't anyone answering the phone at the police station, CM? Oh, because the Three Stooges shenanigans just got <laughs> real at the police station. Lester Pratt bursts in and greets John with a solid punch right to the face. Immediately breaking his nose. Yeah, he breaks the crap out of his nose. He throws him like six feet through the air because as we said, Lester is built. He's like this huge guy. And at no point does it seem like John is going for his gun or using any sort of training or self-defense that I'm sure all cops (laughs) have to go through. He's just so baffled by what's going on. And Sheila's screaming, and it looks like Lester's going to kill John. And so Sheila grabs a shotgun, and I thought she was going to shoot him. But what she actually does is she flips it around, and she takes it over her head and swings it at Lester's Lester's head. And right as she does that, he turns around, and he takes the gun right into his the center of his forehead. Fucking Sheila Crushing Brigham. his frontal lobe. Goddamn... <laughs> beast over Mm -hmm. there (laughs) like peeves his fucking skull in and this the way that lester is described because we said we we liked him because when he was thinking about sally when he came home and ran balls first into his car she said 
he was thinking about how they haven't done anything yet, but, you know, he loves her so much and he can't wait to marry her. And, you know, if she is mm-hmm. in his bed naked waiting for him because his car is there, you know, he'd just ask for God for forgiveness yeah. later because they Fair. mean so much to each other. Yeah. And she's such a great gal. And now he's described as a lot of men have this thing inside of them, this like just tornado of rage. And some can go their whole lives without that ever coming to the surface. But now Lester's has. And the implication is that he is someone who now will not be able to control his anger or his temper or anything and would just be a very bad person to be involved with on any level. Yeah. He's broken. And Sheila managed to get a hold of Alan and says, we need you back here. Somebody's beating the shit out of John. And so Alan is racing his way there. He sees Norris Ridgwick has like caught up to him. Like they're going to get here together. They're going to solve this problem. And Ben, (laughs) what happens? Norris gets sideswiped by Buster out of nowhere. It is the most like shocking. It's such a cliche in like shows and movies now to have that like someone driving and then the sudden like get cut. Mm -hmm. But it fucking got me here. Flips Norris's bug, which, of course, he <laughs> is, drives a bug. And he crawls out of the window and Buster is, like, just coming at him with his fists. Which And he's, this, like, shouting, you didn't think I'd fucking figure it out? You signed your name on all that shit, you idiot. This is another part that doesn't didn't really ring true to me. Because, like, why? Why now? It comes out of nowhere, figuratively and... Literally, <laughs> Alan literally he doesn't even get a punch he gets like what one punch in yeah and then Alan comes up behind him and just handcuffs him to the outside <laughs> handle of his door uh car door which is very funny yeah I don't know how important this is but Jewett is hiding behind a couch <laughs> after shitting on Craig T. Nelson's mom yeah I was hoping that was the end of it it's just, I built it up, uh, how weird it is. It, well, because it, he breaks into his friend George's yeah. house, or Craig, whatever. <laughs> he breaks matter. into Craig's house, and he's just <laughs> messing it up and defecating on things that Craig loves. And Flushes $2,000 worth yeah, of coke down and stabs there. his bird, and then he, he's got guns, and he gets a steak knife, and he's like, <laughs> man... Oh, wouldn't it be cool to shoot him? Oh, man, but it'd be so cool to, like, stab him and feel the blood running over my hands. He loses his mind completely. He's absolutely insane. So he starts to get sleepy, though, while waiting. So he decides <laughs> that he's going to take a little nap behind the couch. But when Craig comes home and he sees, you know, his mother's picture and his dead bird, he and calls his friend. Killed. And he's incredibly upset. And he's like, oh, my God, you have to help me. This terrible thing happened. And he plops down on his couch. And this is where we find out that he's a bigger dude. And it pins it's pins him another weird fucking slapstick it moment is. this and it's like what remember that these two guys are pedophiles why are they getting the <sighs> slapstick why are they the comedic relief <laughs> i didn't feel that moment as slapstick i i felt the like he even references edgar Allan poe it's a really poe moment of like this guy was Going to murder him and unbeknownst sitting on a couch is what saved his life. I don't know. Because it shoved, it like knocked the wind out of him and then pushed so hard in his chest, he can't get a breath in and he starts asphyxiating and seeing black spots. It's a scene from a fucking Farrelly Brothers movie. I I don't know. I can't. This book at these times reminds me of the movie Cool World. 
God, I haven't seen that <laughs> yes! in so long. Which is it. strangely toned. <laughs> yeah. But I love it. Anyway, I only wanted to bring this up because it ends with Craig T. Nelson saying to this random guy over the phone, okay, oh, the, the guy at the new store is dealing? Okay, I'm heading there now. And running out the door, obviously, like, seems to be going to needful things. Mm-hmm. And Jewett with a gun and some other stuff follows him. Yeah. So that's setting up something. That, I don't remember what I'm we had sure. to talk about. Yeah, it I'm sure that'll come back later. Baffling. While Alan and Norris show up to the police station, they once they get inside, Gaunt comes to Buster's aid mentally and walks him through how to climb through his window and start his car and <laughs> wrap around so he can drive. Some guy comes over and he's like, hey, man, you're not supposed to do that. I think you're arrested. And Buster <laughs> kicks him in the face. I pray to God that this scene is in the movie. Yeah. I want to see this scene so bad. And then he runs over the guy's hand. And I just love that he runs over it and he's like, ah, it squashed my hand. And then the rear tire also runs over the hand. And he's like, nah, my hand's putty knives. Buster Keaton played by Jason Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. Oh, God. We've had a lot of fun. So let's not go to this last part. Okay. That's it. No, we have to talk (laughs) about it because now we're back with Sean Rusk, Brian Rusk's little brother, who is sitting in his room thinking about how much trouble his brother must be in because he's been so different. He's been obsessed. He keeps seeing his brother holding this card and he snuck into his room because he got home earlier and looked through it and he found it. And it's the this player he's never heard of, Sammy Coburg, who played one season. And it's just the least remarkable card he's ever seen. It's like, I don't know why he would be obsessed with it. But he, he seems to be. And something is happening. You skipped over what makes this whole part so tense. Is that it starts with Sean watching Brian walking into the garage. Yeah, And then he tries to enlist the help of his mother. And she has her Elvis glasses on and she's dancing around her room and she's like, not now, mommy's busy with Elvis. And the poor kid sees her naked. So he has to go from probably for the first time seeing his mom naked into the garage because he's trying to figure out what's wrong with his brother. And when he gets in there, he sees Brian sitting in the dark with his shoes and socks off and his toe looped around the trigger of a shotgun. I I had flashbacks to reading this in high school. Mm -hmm. I had completely repressed this memory. But it is one of the most brutal fucking scenes in any King novel. And so horrible because Brian's, he's going to kill himself. And he's telling his little brother, he's like, promise me one thing. Promise me that you will never go into needful things. You will stay away from Mr. Gaunt. He is evil. And his brother's just trying to promise him anything and everything to get him to come away. It's like, no, just if you would just say, nope, I'm not listening to you. I'm going there right now. You better put down that gun and stop me. But he's just he wants to make sure that his brother is going to be safe before he pulls the trigger. And the last thing he says to his brother is Sandy Koufax sucks. And he pulls the trigger with his toe. And then we go to Leland Gaunt standing in his his store peering out the window and smiling because he has very keen ears and he heard that gunshot ring out and he takes the sign off of his door and puts a new sign up that says closed until further notice and thinks we're having fun now 
Yes, sir. Well, that's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. I can't deliver that line with my usual gusto because it feels wrong. Join us next episode where we will be finishing this book. For Joshua Kahn and Benjamin Graham, I'm Siam Alexander reminding you, sometimes it's better to be dumb. I know that now. Hey everyone, Sam Alexander here. Thank you for listening to part three of Needful Things. Instead of asking you to rate and review us and follow us on social media, tonight I'm just going to ask that if you or someone you know are thinking about suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. And remember, you won't feel this way forever. It just seems like it. But tomorrow's a new day. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.